Welcome again. So we're going to talk uh, in this episode to Colin Pike. He is one of our co-workers here at Point of Rental. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of what we do is talk to co-workers yeah. <laughs> at Point of Rental. And we ask them questions and they sometimes answer them. Yeah. So what do we, what do, what do we talk to Colin about? Um, oh, good question. We talked a lot about flying, um, various... We learned a lot about rules of of flying, too. Yeah, lots of rules. It was kind of boring. Just kidding. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) I felt very educated by the end of it. (laughs) I'll remove the boring parts in the final version. Oh, okay. So it's only going to be exciting flying rules. (laughs) Yes. Um, But why do we talk about flying with Colin? Uh, He likes to fly. Oh, yeah. I believe. He's going to be a pilot. I feel like that's a very common desire for people that work here. Like so many people wanted to be pilots when they were kids. I guess so. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who want to fly. My husband wanted to fly. Or he kind of, they both have pilot's licenses. So I guess they technically did fulfill that dream. It's just not like an everyday wake up and you're flying somewhere. It's true. Uh, Plane is what I have on my notes (laughs) next. (laughs) I think we already kind of discussed planes. Oh, okay. What else we talk about, Let's talk about terror. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, we talked. Well, we will talk about terror with Colin. Yeah, um, Colin is a terror expert <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. But yeah, we did talk about that for a little bit. That was that was interesting. In that he worked for like six months as an intern at on some terror project, I think in college. I but think that means in he knows more than we do. Terror, terrorism, or terror, not eh, if you want to phrase it that way. Mm. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> I say tomato. Just kidding. I'm not a sociopath. <laughs> um, what else we talk about? <laughs> I think we should just let everyone else kind of discover what we talked about. And that's no way me just covering for the fact that I don't remember what else we talked about. Yeah. I think we talked about his job here. Oh, yeah. A little we bit, usually do but, that. Yeah. But we'll let you figure that out. Anywho, hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the front porch. With Lauren Mohawk. So I'd like to welcome today's guest and our chief architect of cloud engineering, Colin Pike. Colin, welcome to the front porch. Thank you. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Is there a, a, That's a, why there's a next line. <laughs> yeah, there's there's next lines in this uh, oh, prepared that paper works? that you've oh, given okay. me. Oh, okay, that yes. I just read line by line. Well, okay. it says, I'd like to welcome our chief architect of cloud engineering, Colin Pike. Colin, welcome. Let's start with the basics. Who are you? <laughs> I'm Colin Pike. I'm the chief architect of cloud engineering. Oh, great. That's yeah. wonderful. I'm glad we know this now. Twice. It's, you know, repetition helps it get in the mind. Right, it cements it in the, peop- in mm-hmm. the listeners' minds. Yes. Mm-hmm. So where are you from? Uh, I am from a small town in rural Arkansas, right outside of Memphis, Tennessee, that is so unoriginal. They called themselves West Memphis, Arkansas. Wow. Yes. Congratulations. Do you associate more with Memphis, Tennessee, uh, or Memphis, Arkansas, then? Well, West Memphis, Arkansas. Sorry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I associate with neither. Oh, okay. Where do you th- consider yourself from, then? Uh, the cloud. The cloud. Yeah. No, oh. I... Uh, <laughs> I guess I consider myself uh, a proper Dallas person now. I've only been here for five years, but okay. um, but yeah, I think Dallas is more my type of speed. I mean, I, I still associate with Arkansas, I guess. Okay, gotcha. Are you a big like Razorbacks fan or just pig fan in general? Um, um, I am. I am not the. I mean, I know that I might look like the college quarterback. Um, 
that's a joke okay. because there's no visual component to this podcast so that that joke doesn't land as uh-huh. much but uh no i uh, i did go to university of arkansas uh where the razorbacks are from but uh i am not the most uh apt sports person okay yeah that i mean you could still be a fan of the school even if you're not a fan of the sports of the school i hear there's academics involved as well that's true uh the calculus club was nice i don't uh, you know other than that i don't really um yeah i i mean I, I actually went back about a year ago um to uh to a wedding uh because it's on the northwest side of the state uh which is the pretty part of arkansas where like there's some mountains and stuff um and it was it was good i mean it's an interesting, it's an interesting area in uh, Arkansas because it's kind of, it's kind of outside of what you would typically picture Arkansas, kind of a rural, um, you know, older state, I guess. But uh, it's it's nice, mountainous, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so you like Western Arkansas better than West Memphis, Arkansas? I don't really know if anybody likes West Memphis, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. For any of the thousands of listeners. From West Memphis, Arkansas. <laughs> I apologize. Nothing against that town, uh, but yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So um, let's just get started with a very basic question. You're stranded on a remote desert island. Um, are you alone or with your greatest enemy? Wow. I, uh, I really should have read these questions beforehand. <laughs> um, but some of us had work to do. Um, some of us, not me, but some of us. Mm. Um, am I alone or with my greatest enemy? I'm trying to think of who my greatest enemy is also, because that, that seems to be like what the next question is going to be. Um, this is the problem with giving them the, the questions. Well, I'm just, uh, you know, strategically thinking. It's not that I have the questions in front of me. Um, I guess I would be, uh, I guess I would be alone, stranded. Um, yeah. As opposed to being with an enemy. Okay. Because you can't think of who the enemy would be. Uh, not any that are appropriate for a podcast. Okay. Darn, I was hoping you were going to name drop some random person that we don't know and just be like, they know. (laughs) They know. One of those thousands of listeners from West Memphis, Arkansas. (laughs) You're going to send them the the podcast just to be like, just to let you know, you're my greatest enemy. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I don't think we really got you in a rage mindset, um, but hopefully we'll get you there eventually throughout the course of the interview. It's quite the uh, I was going to say it's quite it's the Yeah. <laughs> uh, anywho, let's uh, move on to your job history that you so love and would like to get back to is what it sounds like. So we'll, we'll get you going there. <laughs> <laughs> so this sounds like an interview now. Yep. <laughs> so um, what do you want to be when you were a kid? Um. I always wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a fighter pilot specifically. Um, I watched Top Gun and loved it, uh, like all children of my age. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was probably my number. There was a small amount of time where I wanted to be an architect, like a, a um, you know construction type of architect. Uh, okay. But that was a pretty short-lived uh, desire. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. When you say construction kind of ar- architect, you mean like? Building Yeah, buildings? like building architect, as opposed to chief architect of cloud engineering. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, building, like uh, doing, you know, house design and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that was when I was really little. And then once okay. I got a little bit older, I wanted to be a pilot. Mm, okay. 
I, I take it it took you a while to figure out what cloud computing was. I don't know. Maybe you're pretty sharp and like six years old. You were like, I'm going to be <laughs> yeah. a cloud computer I don't, person. Yeah, I don't think uh, cloud computing was a thing when I was six. Um, uh, well, it was definitely not. Um, I did not ever think that I wanted – I mean, I, I don't think I had a epiphany when I was young and wanted to be a uh, cloud engineer. Um, when I was 16, I worked at a um, – all my friends were working at places uh, in town, uh, you know, the generic things that 16-year-olds work at. Um, and I was like, I don't really want to do, you know, I want to learn something that sounds cool. And so there was a small uh, small little company that uh, was a little security company that made like DVR software for uh, video recording uh, solutions and whatnot. And so I went up there one summer and was like, hey, do you guys need anybody that runs cabling or puts up cameras, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they said, sure. So it was a small company. Um, it was just uh, myself, the owner, and then, uh, like, one other guy. And I learned basically everything from from that job uh, that got me interested in what is now, I guess, cloud computing. The uh, guy that, that owned that company, um, you know, I would, I would come out from school during the school year and he would have like an IP address written on the wall, on, on the uh, whiteboard. And he would say, Hey, you know, this is, you know, this is what an IP address is. This is what series A's are. This is what ports are. This is how they work, blah, blah, blah. That's how I learned how to program. He, he taught me, uh, uh, Java. And then at some point I remember him distinctly saying, Hey, Colin, like, um, this, uh, you know, the company Amazon, which at that point they had just started selling like everything. Like they, they had been a bookstore. They just started selling everything. And he was like, they're going to start renting out their servers to people so that you can pick and choose your servers and, and you can do all this stuff. And at that point, I didn't even really know what a server was. Uh, but he was like, that's where, uh, that's where the world's going. The world software is going is it's going to, to this thing. They're calling it the cloud. You can provision and partition servers as big or as small as you want, whatever you want, you need to learn that. And, you know, 16, so I was like, all right. And yeah, so that was kind of my uh, initial onset into cloud computing. But I don't think uh, I was ever just, I didn't wake up one day and was like, I want to be a cloud engineer. Mm -hmm. So did you self-teach yourself all of that to get into cloud computing or did you go uh, to school well, for that? Or? Well, I learned most of it. Um, you know, from different jobs. I mean, I learned a lot there. And then when I went to college, um, I took some computer uh, classes, but but not many. Uh, mostly my, theater. Yeah, mostly theater. I'm not far off. My I have a degree in uh, uh, criminal justice, uh, one in sociology and one in psychology. So uh, nothing at all related to uh, cloud computing. But while I was in school, um, I worked... Um, uh, I went to school while I worked, and uh, I worked at a a software company um, that wrote some legal software, and and uh, I was a Linux engineer, and then um, uh, that I learned a lot, you know, from doing that kind of stuff, and so uh, that helped prepare, I think, a lot more than than um, you know any self teaching or whatnot. Hmm. All right. So just knowing the right people and finding the right jobs and just pursuing that. Career. Yeah, and just um, I, I think yeah, I think being being sixteen and and at least learning what it was helped a lot. And then um, 
and then, you know, when I got to college and was able, because of that experience, was able, and I knew how to program and I knew how to do systems engineering to an extent, that helped me get the kind of first real techie type of job. And so, mm-hmm. um, and that was in Linux um, systems. And so that that uh, that really helped kind of launch, I guess, into, into cloud. And I know um, before you got here, you were also in the Marines, which does not sound like, I mean, I, I, mean, I could be wrong, it does not sound like something that you'd be doing cloud computing with. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they do some some cloud computing. But uh, yeah, very, very short amount of time in the uh, Marine Corps. Uh, not really, uh, I don't really consider uh, myself a veteran. I was a, it was a very, very short amount of time. I, I wanted to be a pilot. Um, you know, so most Marines are very, uh, like Brian here, um, very gung-ho is the, the term they use. You know, they want to go fight and, uh, you know, defend freedom. I just wanted like a $20 million plane. So, you know, I was I was not your uh, general uh, Marine mindset, but uh, that was the easiest and quickest way that I found to, or the most efficient way I found to, uh, to be a pilot. And so uh, my father uh, was a Marine, and so... Uh, yeah, after high school, I um, did this program where you could be a, a reserve. So I went to boot camp, and then uh, you just go over the, that first summer. Um, and then uh, when you're finished, you you start college. And so uh, you do a program that uh, was called the Platoon Leaders Course. It was, it was kind of like ROTC almost. Uh, you go to officer candidate school in the summers. Uh, got injured, uh, injured um, my, my MCL, my knee. And, and so that was kind of my... Uh, my Marine Corps career, and so yeah, and so that uh, that led into, you know, what's what do I do instead? You know, I can't just go buy an F eighteen. So um, technically, do you really need an MCL to fly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, the rotor pedals will operate themselves. It's fine. Which I think you also you have a pilot's license now. Did you have that before you got into the Marines, or was that post? Yeah, I um I I had a pilot's license. Uh, I was very fortunate, and uh, it was a, a hobby of my dad's growing up to fly, a uh, little small. I mean, little small like four seater airplanes like Cessnas. And did he fly whatnot. in the Marines, or this was just no inside? no this is just uh um uh just kind of a hobby that that he picked up uh when he was I think in his twenties and um. And so he passed it on to me. I, I learned how to fly. I started my first flying lesson at ten, uh, and then yeah, around seventeen is when I got got a license. And you can't own an F eighteen as a citizen. I take it. Um, I don't think you can own an F eighteen. You can apparently own a Harrier, uh, which uh, a Harrier is um, a um, it's a, a plane that the Marine Corps uses. It, it does vertical takeoffs and landings. And um, there, I read an article. Uh, so Brian's laughing because I'm sure he's thinking about the Pepsi commercials where you could win a Harrier. I do remember those, yes. Um, but uh, there is a person that I watched a YouTube uh, document- documentary about that he had been a Harrier pilot in the Marine Corps. He was, he was older. He'd been really successful in some business ventures, was retiring. And he saw a Harrier come up for sale uh, from some other country. And he was like, I wonder if I, the FAA would even let me fly this thing, like if I brought this over here. And so he contacted the FAA and somehow they issued him. They were like, well, you, you know, you're, you're qualified. And it's, it's a very expensive venture, I'm sure, because it probably per hour costs just as much as the entire 
airplane does to fly it. But he mm. flies it, so. I assume they don't let him, like, have weapons, uh, active weapons on it. Uh, I would I would imagine <laughs> not, but, you know. Have you ever tried to do that with your planes? No, I have not uh, <laughs> retrofitted my plane with, uh, with weapons. Well, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, so how did you go from flying planes to now you're in software? I don't quite understand that transition. Yeah, so... Um, you know, when I got injured, I was I, that was what my plan had been was to be a pilot, and so I kind of had to reevaluate. You know, what am I going to do? Um, and my, I mean, I guess I had always thought in the back of my mind, like I know how to program. I, I like computers. I like um, stuff like this. And so, um, y- you know, you can only be a fighter pilot for so long. So I did. Even when I was younger, I, I kind of thought, like, well, what do I do after that? Like, am I going to go be an airline pilot? Like most pilots. And I didn't think that that would ever be something I would be interested in. And so I had always thought like, well, after, after being a fighter pilot, I'll, I'll go do something like, you know, um, government contracting, uh, doing software or something like, you know, the NSA or, or something to that extent. And so I thought, well, what, what should I do? Should I focus on like, what should I focus on at this point? Because I was still in college at the time, and I was like, what, what should I focus on? And so I had that job doing um, uh, doing systems engineering and, and some software stuff. And so um, I, at that point, did start really self-learning a lot more of, uh, at that point, what was starting to become, like, cloud computing and cloud engineering. Did you contact someone at Amazon and say, what are you doing? How do I learn this? <laughs> no, actually, um, at that time, um, it was a little bit before some of the online. I think Udemy was a thing at the time, but um, there weren't a lot of like online resources about how to do these things. Um, so I just started, like, I looked up what is, you know, what do you need to learn how to do to be a, a cloud person, and so. Um, I found that I found some sites that talked about, you know, all the d- different tools and, and technology stacks and all that stuff. And so I would just go and read the docs, uh, the, the documentation from from the sites and I would get test accounts. Um, you know, I was a broke college kid, so I would sign up for a free trial and then I would create another free email um, and sign up for another free trial and just keep, you know, learning um Learn different stuff, yeah. And I got to apply a lot of it at the company that I'd, I was working for. I mean, I, w- I was working full-time, and so um, I got to apply a lot of it uh, while I was working there. So how many email accounts do you manage? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I do remember, though, that um, at some point, I um, my uh, uh, credit card got um, uh uh, stolen or I saw a charge and so you know I, I went and was like this is not me and so it was like oh we're going to send you a, a new card and at that point I hadn't really been paying attention because eventually these free tri- these free tiers run out and then they'll start charging you but because of what I had spun up in these accounts they were very minuscule charges so like 13 cents or 19 cents or, or whatever and I wouldn't notice these charges and so once the credit card number had changed I started getting all these emails about like, you know, cannot build this account, cannot build this account, cannot, and I was like, well, this solves this problem. <laughs> so I no longer get charged 11 cents, you know, 40 times from Amazon. 
there you go. Um, so what does a chief architect of cloud engineering do? You're not building cities out of clouds. No. No. Okay. No. That's just what, like, based yeah. off the name is what it sounds like. No, uh, that's a good question. Um, so, you know, uh, software is, um, you know, what, how everything works now. So you have Facebook and somebody has to actually create those features that you see on Facebook. Somebody has to create the forums or on, on one of the point of rail softwares like Essential. Somebody has to create the process of contracts being generated or somebody has to write um, code to make things like images display and things like that. So the developers do that. So we have so really talented software engineers that actually write the code to to put those features into place. Those those bits of code, so th those different files and, and pieces of code have to live somewhere. And so they live on servers, which is no different than your laptop other than um, it's a little bit bigger. Most people think about it like an old desktop computer, but just think about it really massive um, with a lot of resources like memory and, and compute power. Um, and all that stuff now lives in, in the cloud, uh, which just means that there are big, big, big warehouses that have a ton of these big old desktop looking things. Um, they're called data centers. And those things are spread all throughout the world that people like Amazon um, manage. And that is the cloud. We say, hey, we don't want to buy a big data center. We don't want to buy a big, you know, rack of servers that cost a whole lot of money because we don't know exactly how much uh, we might need for uh, any given day or, you know, we might need more later in the year. We might need less resources later in the year. And so instead of us going like you would traditionally do and, and buying and then amortizing the cost of a, you know, a huge $5 million server over five years or 10 years um, and most of it sitting dormant for most of that time while you build customers up, we go and we ask these people like Amazon, we say, hey, can we borrow some of your servers in exchange? We'll, we'll pay it, pay you for them. And so today we might need, you know, this big of a server and tomorrow we might need, you know, two of that, that size server and the next day we might need 30 of that size server. And so... Um, so we're like, kind of renting storage space from Amazon servers. Yeah, in a sense. Um, so you're renting, you are renting storage space. Um, uh, and you're you're renting compute power and resources, so the ability to run that code that those developers create. And so, um, what a chief architect does is um, one of the main functions is I oversee the teams that uh, build out what the logical segmentation of those environments look like. So, you know, when somebody when you when Brian opens up his laptop and goes to you know, um, pointerrentalcloud.com to get to the Essentials application. That request goes from his laptop and it goes all the way over to Oregon, um, uh, perhaps, and and hits one of the servers over there. Um, so the the way that that logically looks, um, you know, it's it's separated between um, system architecture designed for databases and designed for web application servers and. Uh, there's these new uh, things that um, uh, that we use called containers and, and serverless architecture and all of this types of stuff, the design and build out of those types of things, the architecture of those types of things is, is what I oversee. So the building of bridges between here and Oregon or New York or wherever those servers are? Yeah, because you have to think, you know, we have a point of rental, we have customers all over the world. Um, so we have customers in you know, in Dubai, and we have customers in Australia and in the UK. And if you think about it, if one of those customers in Dubai, for example, if they need to 
rent um, a um, bobcat to a customer. The image of that bobcat needs to exist so that um, one of those customers can go to the website and actually reserve it. Well, that image, if we um, if we think about how it used to be done, you know, that, that image could be on a server in Oregon. And what would happen is when that person in Dubai opened their laptop and tried to go to the website, the request would actually go all the way across the ocean floor, all the way over to Oregon, grab that image, and then bring it all the way back and download it in, in Dubai. And that, that process is really slow, as you can imagine, even though it's data and, and things move quickly, um, it would be really slow. And so the architecture of that um, takes into account geographical distribution of resources so that, you know, to some extent we can speed that process up really well by um, caching or storing off that image somewhere more um, to what we call, we call it uh, edge caching or, or to a location that is geographically more convenient uh, to that type of request. And so we have to take in that kind of thing into account for all of our customers around the globe. Um, and that doesn't just stop at images. You know, we have to think about all the data um, and then the most effective, uh, cost-effective way to do those types of things. So data could be edge cached to a location that's closer to them. So if they're in Dubai, it just, oh, it's France, even though it's originally stored in Oregon or something. Yeah, exactly. So you picked that up really quick. So uh, I do have an opening on my team. If, if you oh, know, wow, if you great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Welcome to English 101 with Professor Sarah Crowther. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Today's word is lurgy. I've got the dreaded lurgy. The lurgy? Oh boy. I don't know. It sounds, I mean, the first thing I think about is like liturgy. Well, whatever the one for like, um, uh, you know, religious documents. Yeah, liturgy. Um, so maybe that. I don't know. What does it mean? I'm afraid that answer is incorrect. So it's slang for ill. And also it actually can be used in the school playground as a not very nice thing. So kids sometimes will be like, you can't play with us because you've got the lurgy. Um, so you have recently become the chief architect of cloud engineering. Um, so that means you've had to build your team. How has that been going for you? Yeah. Um... It's been good. Um, so, um, you know, I, I came to Point of Rental five years ago as um, uh, the senior DevOps engineer and then I, I uh, was promoted to the principal DevOps engineer. So I oversaw what we just talked about, the architecture of, of uh, um, those types of resources. But um, as Point of Rental has grown, we've, you know, we've acquired some other businesses like rental hosting and, and, and rental online. Uh, and then we've massively expanded the, um, uh, the softwares that we originally built, like Rental Expert and Elite and, and uh, Rental Essentials. And so as those things grow, our team by nature grows because the footprint that we have and the spend in Amazon ex uh, extends. And so um, we had a need for um, the team, which originally started um, because of our cloud native, is what it's called, cloud native application, Rental Essentials. Um, the DevOps uh, or cloud engineering capability started specifically for that product. But as we've grown, acquired those other other products, um, we've needed to do similar things that we did for Essentials. We need to do it for all of the products within the company because cloud is kind of the future of, uh, of a lot of uh, a lot of our products. And so 
Um, so yeah, we formed the team, um, and then um, I also oversee a security, uh, a security operations and a network operations team that um, all of them kind of piggyback under one ops group. Has there been anything surprising about building your team? Um, I think the the hardest thing is um, I really like the days where I put headphones. I mean, I'm I'm tra- I mean I'm a traditionally a programmer. Like after that Linux engineering job, I, I became a programmer, and I I I like the days where I get to put headphones on and just write code or just um, uh, architect and design systems and stuff. And so the hardest thing was kind of abstracting myself from traditionally doing that and giving a lot of um, kind of leeway to my really capable engineers to make those decisions themselves so that I could more uh, affect the organization from a, a managerial standpoint and do things like forecasting and, and budgeting and, and uh, the overall architecture and um, uh, like position that the point of rental has in the cloud space. And so that was a little difficult for me to uh, try to get my hands on is just kind of, you know, pulling myself away from some of those day-to-day tasks. That is kind of, I've talking to some of the other managers, the humility of stepping into managerial roles of like, you have a part that you love to do. I think Wayne has even said this before. He's like, I love developing. Like, that's my favorite thing to do. But as the company grows, like there's just a need for more leadership and there's a need for direction. And um, you just kind of have to take a step back. And I was actually on a, uh, I struggled with it a little bit. So at my last company, I was also, um, I had started, I was an individual a contributor, and then I, I was a director of, of uh, uh, at that company uh, before I left. But I, I kind of struggled with it when I when it happened here. Just thinking about like, it's not that you feel useless. It's uh, it's more of like you feel uh, you feel disconnected from the day to day engineering tasks that you've you know grown so accustomed to doing. And uh, you know there there is a um, kind of circularity portion of of developing something where you build it and then it goes out. And even in my world where it's not like a customer facing thing, like a, a software developer, um, you know, they, they create a feature and then it's, it's appreciated and used and leveraged. There's a circular component of like appreciation that they get from that. Even in my world, creating something and sending it out when it works and doesn't break, there's some type of, you know, uh, psychological connective, like, hey, this is great. And so doing less of that really was uh, kind of difficult to comprehend. But um, I was in a meeting with Wayne, actually, that, um, I mean, there were, there were several people in the meeting, and Wayne said something about, you know, all of you are here, a lot of you people uh, that are on this call um, are in vastly different positions than you were in, you know, a year ago or three years ago or whatever the case is. And he said, um, as the company grows, um, you know, we have a need to where we need you to teach and expand the capability that you originally brought to the company. Um, and you need to facilitate allowing that to happen at more of a horizontal capacity. Um, and so, you know, we need the ability for multiple people to do what I, um, you know, originally uh, was hired to start doing. Um, and so it did kind of help me to, you know, really understand and and, uh, uh, and appreciate kind of the position. Um, so what is your favorite part of working here? Um, I definitely, 
you know, I know Brian wants me to say him. I was but, say, besides talking to us, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it, growing with the company, you know, when I started um, five years ago uh, here, uh, I think we had maybe 80 people. Um, and now we're, I don't even know where we are, 200 people um, or somewhere about there. Closer, well, in the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S. And so um, uh, globally, though, I think, I mean, we're probably closer to 300 people. And, and you know, I know with the uh, uh, projections and plans of, of us, we're, we're growing significantly. And so I really uh, like being um, part of a small team that, um, you know, has big ambitions and starts to grow. And so this kind of transitional period. So I do appreciate that. And uh, as much as a, of a hard time as I give Wayne, um, I do appreciate that um, I think it is a benefit um, that, um, you know, our company is a software company that's driven by somebody that was a software developer. And so that's something that, um, you know, hopefully Wayne doesn't listen to this so he doesn't, he doesn't get more arrogant. No. But um, I'll rephrase that. It's okay. He doesn't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, just um, – you know, Wayne's a very good, uh, a very good leader for the company, and I think it has been a very big benefit that um, he has definitely put technology first in a technology company. And I've definitely seen that in other companies that sometimes, you know, procedures and processes uh, and business is put first as opposed to technology. Uh, I've heard that your first name is Jonathan. Why do you go by Colin? Yes, uh, my first name is Jonathan. My middle name is Colin. Um, that is a doing of uh, uh, Becky, who is uh, my mother. Um, she uh, she was the one that picked that. Um, she picked that for my entire family, um, uh, my sisters. Um, to where you go by your middle name instead of your first name? Yep. So uh, it was, uh, uh, for example, my, my sister's name was Lauren Haley. And so uh, she goes by her middle name, Haley. And so... Um, Oddly enough, my my father also uh, goes by his middle name, um, which he just grew up going by. Uh, my mother does not. My mom goes by her first name, but she wanted to call all of us by. She it's just very, requires everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, it was very annoying as a child because you'd go to like a doctor's office or something. And they'd come out and you know they'd say Jonathan, Jonathan, and as a kid, I was like, that's not me. So hmm. a little annoying, but yeah, I go by call. Okay. Would you ever go change it and start going by Jonathan? No. I, I mean, I'm actually, I like it. It's somewhat unique. Um, so. I was going to say we already have a Jonathan here, so too bad. Yeah, I'm, uh, I am the only Colin that works here. Uh, as, I was opposed to Matt's, which um, there's probably some correlation and causation between people born in the, you know, Mel's born in the 80s and 90s and named Matt. We have a very high... Uh, ratio of mats here. Okay, so are you going to make it to where you don't hire anyone named Colin on your team if you have that power? <laughs> you know, um, we we just hired an intern uh, named Daniel for the, uh, he's a cybersecurity intern on our security operations team. Um, and one of our other security engineers, or full-time engineers, is named Daniel. Um, and that has already been drastically confusing. Um, and Force them to name go by their middle name. Yeah, and they also both go by Daniel instead of Dan. And so it's not like you can, like with Matt, you can say Matt A or Matt B or Matt C, like based on their first initial of last name. But it's hard to say Daniel R or Daniel C as opposed to Dan C and Dan R. We're not going to fire one of them because of that, but it is just a it is just yet. difficult. Not at, yet at this point. At this point, as of this recording, for legal reasons, we yes. <laughs> it will not be based on that. Right. 
Okay. Uh, this Brian, do you want to ask this next question? Sure. A while back, we sent you a questionnaire for a game show we were doing. <laughs> yes. And in it, you said that you are a leading expert on geospatial distribution so of terror group planning. Where is the terror <laughs> coming from? Yes. So, and do they maintain a six-foot distance from each other? Yeah. So I don't know if I said leading expert, uh, but I did say that uh, geo geospatial uh, and temporal mapping for terror distribution. So uh, while I was in college, uh, again, I, I thought about doing an essay or, or CIA or some type you of... You want to be a spy. <laughs> yeah, some type of... Uh, but but from a programming perspective, the software engineer for one of them or something like that. He wants to not get shot, but still... Yeah, <laughs> low risk. Uh, I um, University of Arkansas had a terrorism research center uh, that was um, funded by the FBI and grants from from the federal government, um, and uh, I interned there a couple of uh, a, a couple of semesters or a few semesters uh, as a terrorism research intern, uh, and so we mostly did temporal uh, mapping of uh, terror groups, and so you would be able to determine, um, you know, like a, a right wing terror group um, might have uh, threat actors that would do um, relevant pre-terror tasks like purchasing uh, of uh, explosives or something or testing those explosives in specific locations and distances away from where the threat would actually happen. And you could track down based upon uh, things like that, uh, what type of terror group it was. So an example would be someone that is a, a right-wing terrorist might buy, they might travel 75 plus miles to go purchase um some type of explosive, um, but they may only travel one to two miles from their home to test the explosive, and then they may travel more than 100 miles to actually do it. And you logically think about it, and a lot of the, um, you know, the Timothy McVeigh's and right-wing terror groups, they lived in rural locations in the country, so they had access to facilities where they could uh, test these things, but they didn't live next to um, you know, a, a chemical manufacturing plant. They had to drive to a city to do that. And then most of their threats uh, were enacted against things that were in populous areas like downtown cities that were further away from where they lived. So you do all of that, you create flower mapping and, and uh, uh, temporal analysis charts based upon uh, where they are and you can track different terror cells. Um, but yeah, so that's... Is this, is. is this tracking of people who are, like, already in the system as, like, flagged as, like, you should watch them? Or is this, like, anyone, anywhere, at any time who's driven 75 miles to get explosives <laughs> doesn't yeah. leave their house for a few I weeks? Think, I think Jules is. Yeah, <laughs> are you asking for a specific reason, Jules? No, uh, I just, I'm like, I, is that, do we have the technology to track um, every person? Or is it just if they're flagged, then? I can't confirm or, no. I, 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 <laughs> let, let me preface that I was an intern, so I was mostly just, like, you sure. know. Uh, scanning things and, and typing in things in spreadsheets. But um, the kind of macro analysis of it is um, they gathered this stuff on so many like terror groups like uh, and, and even things that they didn't consider an actual terror group by the CIA's classification of a terror group. Um, they would quantify and qualify these things um, so that they would have bulk, uh, you know, bits of data. Everything's about having the amount of data to com compare against. But your yeah your your trips to Walmart from your your ranch are not being are not likely being tracked by by interns from University of Arkansas. Gotcha, sounds good. <laughs> um, you also mentioned that you had a school suspension for flying too low over the school. Um, technically, it was an in-school suspension. So, oh. 
wasn't quite uh, that terrible, but um, uh, <laughs> it's still suspension. It's still school. Yeah, I mean, so yes, so there was a tradition for seniors in uh, the town uh, where I grew up, or, or, or the school where I went to high school. Uh, in a, West Memphis, Arkansas. Yeah, well, technically, I went to high school in an adjacent town. Um, oh, East uh, Memphis, Arkansas. <laughs> East <laughs> West Memphis. No, it had a no, <laughs> it had a normal name. It was it was called Marion, mm. um, but Marion, Arkansas. I went to high school there, um, and um, they had a tradition that the first day of school, the seniors would you know, have flags that would say, you know, the year that they were graduating and like have things painted. And they would drive around a a circle that was like a a long circle drive that was in front of all the schools. And so they would do this. So I thought, and I got together with some of my friends that that were going to be doing that. I was like, well, I can fly. So, you know, why don't I just fly low over this while you guys drive around in circles? And, uh, um, just in case one of the listeners to this is with the FAA, this was years and years ago. I think it's beyond the statute of limitations. And I was definitely uh, 500, foot, 500 feet above uh, any um, obstacles and 1,000 feet above any congested areas, just, uh, just for regulation purposes. So I was legal. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, I was legal. However, it was definitely um, pretty low um, and it was... It was not well received by the administrative uh, individuals at that school. How did they identify it was you? Did you have like this is Colin? I mean, this is again. This is this is a town called (laughs) West Memphis. You can imagine there are not many. This was Marion, I thought. This was Marion. So Mm -hmm. this is even a smaller town than West Memphis. You can imagine there are likely not many uh, seventeen or eighteen year olds that are that are flying, and so. uh, they immediately knew who it was. They didn't require the terror mapping. They did not. Yes, they did not, they did not have to go to the terror mapping index to see who I was. Did you have a little flag that said the year you were graduating? Coming uh, plane? No, I, I did not. Um, the plane was the same red, white, and blue colors of the school mascot, which was the Patriot. And so it did work out relatively well. Maybe that's why you got the school suspension because you didn't have the flag. Yeah. It's like, look, we couldn't yeah, tell you. Not enough really. school spirit. Yeah. So speaking of flying, yes. I'm told that you like to tie yourself to a large fan and a kite <laughs> and go flying for really long distances. Uh, first of all, what the heck? Um, second of all, how'd you discover that was a thing? Yes, uh, really long distances is, is relative. Um, uh, you're Iceland about, and back? Oh, I see. Uh, yes, um, uh, I didn't fly to these places on this device. So so you're talking about paramotoring, uh, which mm. is the the activity that I like to participate in. Um, so um, for people who don't know what that is, um, most people know what paragliding is, where people put a, a paraglider or parachute-like uh, thing behind them, and they kind of run off mountains and, and they glide around. Well, here in uh, wonderful Dallas, Texas, we don't really have mountains. And so... We just have skyscrapers. Yeah. Uh, you can accomplish the same sort of uh, sensation with an, a paraglider, um, and an engine. And so instead of relying upon um, uh, wind and, and thermals from uh, the seat or, or from the uh, heat uh, that the sun displaces unevenly on the ground, keeping you afloat like paragliders are, uh, we use an engine. And so you, it's, it almost looks like a backpack. It's a two-stroke engine, just like a, a weed eater. 
and uh, it has a propeller on it, and you uh, you run it, bring the paraglider above your head, and give it gas, and off you go. Can you fly vertically or just like horizontally? Or um, so it's hard. Is there to, a limit? <laughs> it's hard to uh, uh, to explain how it works from a physics. Uh, um, standpoint. So but explain it from a you, five-year-old standpoint. If you have a paraglider uh, and you have below it, you have an engine, as you increase the throttle, it changes the angle of attack of the parachute. And so as you fly, you climb. And so when you reduce throttle, you descend. And so um, you know you can take these things legally up to 18,000 feet or technically 17,999 for our already uh, discussed FAA listeners, um, or, or you can fly two feet off the ground and, and you know drag your foot along the ground. Uh, there are some restrictions and regulations; uh, they're pretty minimal. Um, the FAA sees it as it's a single-seater occupant um, craft, and so you're the only one that's endangering yourself. So they don't really care <laughs> as long as you're not endangering others. Um, so it's pretty limited uh, regulations as opposed to. Uh, um, uh, regular general aviation, but still like no fly zones. Still, there are definitely out. no fly zones. Yeah, so um, we don't need to discuss all the rules for. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, where's the coolest place you've paramotored? Uh, probably Egypt. I um, I've got to. I uh, was really fortunate and got to go to um a, uh, trip over the pyramids where um I went over there. Um, I flew for um. I had a couple of. Uh, sponsors from a pair of different paramotor companies and paraglider companies that um, kind of facilitated this this trip, and um, I got to go over there, fly over the pyramids, which was a really interesting thing to see, um, just up close, being able to see them, but also to be able to see them from the from the sky. You just kind of think about like no one saw the pyramids like that for you know thousands of years um, until you know the first uh, airline flew over it. I imagine uh, they had catapults yeah. at some point and they were like <laughs> shooting people that's, over uh, it. That's actually a good point, yeah. And do you have to paramotor in only like warm climates? Because I imagine if you're somewhere cold and it's just like you and a fan, like it's not like do you wear like giant parka snowsuits? Yeah. Um, you, uh, I mean, even here in Dallas, um, you can imagine if it's 70 degrees on the ground, as you go up um, for every thousand feet that you climb, you lose, I think, it, I, don't quote me on this, but I think it's two degrees uh, Fahrenheit for every. Literally degree. quoting you on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's it's about two degrees. So you know, on the ground it might be seventy, and at four thousand feet it might be fifty degrees. And so it's it really cold, and when you have the wind in your face and all that stuff. And so, yeah, we have flight suits, um, balaclavas that you wear, and heated gloves, heated um, uh, vests. Um, so yeah, stay warm. Has there been a time where you were paramotoring and you thought, "Well, looks like I'm going to die now." <laughs> Um, it is definitely, there is a, uh, a wonderful video that, uh, is called risk and reward, uh, and is narrated by William Shatner, who is an avid paramotor pilot. Um, and it talks about, it is one of the safest forms of aviation, um, which a lot of people find hard to believe, but you already have a deployed parachute and you're not going that fast. You have a very slow descent rate. So even if you lost an engine, you're only going at, you know, it, you're gliding further than you're descending. Um, <clears throat> but you can definitely ratchet up the risk as much as you want. Just like riding a motorcycle is dangerous inherently, but riding one without a helmet is even more dangerous. But you have to personally assess, you know, do I get enough reward from not wearing a helmet um, to 
you know, qualify the risk. Uh, and so the same thing with paramotoring. So um, I did a course called an SIV, which is, stands for something in French that means basically safety in flight. Um, and you purposefully induce bad situations to be able to learn how to recover from them. And so there were definitely points in that course where I did, I stalled my paraglider and, and fully collapsed it and wrapped, you know, pieces of the fabric around it to where you're falling really, really quickly. Um, and <laughs> it sounds like they're like, and stab yourself in the leg a couple times too. And, um, yeah, it, um, the videos that I have of, of doing it definitely, um, uh, they don't look pleasant, and they were not pleasant to um, to take part in at, at the beginning. But you definitely you learn how to get out of bad situations that could accidentally occur. All right, let's move on to five important questions. Five important questions. Five important, five important questions. questions. Five important questions. So, question number one is: What would you say is your greatest success in life? Wow. Um, we start with the easy questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is my greatest success in life? Um, I would say being able to explore things like flying. So I would say flying in general is something that I have been successful at that has given me the most reward, I think, so far. You really like exploring clouds. <laughs> yeah. Although if the FAA is listening... I only fly in clouds when on an instrument flight plan in an airplane, not while in a paramotor. Is the FAA one of our listeners? Oh, you don't know. Yeah, I was oh. going to say, I don't know. They're not going to tell you. They don't necessarily listen to all of the podcasts because I <laughs> yeah. see our top three listeners, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's the ATF, not the FAA. Um, question number two, what is your greatest fear? Oh, the um, FAA. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my greatest fear is probably um, probably whales. The country? Uh, yeah, the Welsh people really, really grind my gears. Uh, no, uh, the, the mammal. Any particular kind of whale? Like oh, there's blue whales, there's beluga dis- whales. Don't uh, discriminate uh, amongst the well. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, while scuba diving, I've, I've definitely seen like – you know, sharks and like I saw a barracuda once and um, those things didn't bother me. But I think that if I saw a well, it's just the size. Like I don't think anything should be the size of like two school buses and be a living, moving thing. If you could tell first day at Pointer Rental Colin, one piece of advice that would lead to becoming a successful pointer earlier, uh, what would you say? Oh, um, well, this is assuming that I was not a successful pointer early on. Well, we put earlier because it's like hypothetically, uh, not immediately, but right. obviously you're successful now. I would probably tell myself, um, I would probably tell myself to uh, get out and meet people from other departments. Um, uh, actually, I would tell myself, I would give myself information about rental because I did not know anything. I mean, the only thing that I've really ever rented is from Blockbuster. Um, so... I did not know the rental industry. And over the past several years, I've learned a lot about um, inventory management and fleet management. And it's it's interesting to sit in com- conversations with people that have been in the rental industry um, and listen to what they say. And just it's just this whole world that most people don't know about. So you would not encourage yourself to meet other people from other departments? No, 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 no. Okay. I'm, I'm, 
definitely not. What is your most embarrassing moment as a pointer? I don't know if I have an, I don't know if it's embarrassing or annoying. Um, so uh, your uh, leader, we'll call her um, Lauren. Um, well, I mean, we'll call her Lauren because that's her name. It's usually what she goes by. Her yeah. first name, at least. Yes. So uh, at some point, I uh, I walked by her office and made a comment about, it smells like a Forever 21 in this place or something. Um, just a passing, it wasn't even targeted at her office. I was just like, why does the office smell like this? Like it smells like a, you know, like a mall, like a store in the mall where, you know, like Forever 21 or Abercrombie or something. Nothing, you know, we just kind of laughed. Nothing really thought about it. Um, a few weeks later, I was in my office and I was like, man, I'm starting to get a headache. Like, I, why does this smell like, it smells like a Hollister in here. Like, why is it like this? And it got to the point where I was like ripping panels off of the wall and like, why does this smell like this? And then I kept hearing this like noise. So kind of long story short of how I discovered this, but uh, Lauren had uh, taken, you know, those Febreze air fresheners that are on a timer that release things. She'd Mm taken one of those, taken the cartridge of Febreze, thrown that away, taken a can of axe body spray <laughs> uh duct taped it to this device stuck it in my ceiling tile and then placed like hollister cologne samples behind the panels under my seat all of these <laughs> things and by the end of it i had to work from home for like four days straight because my <laughs> office just smelled like if you've ever been in a hollister or an abercrombie like amplify that by 10 and that's what it smelled like um so that was a somewhat embarrassing moment i guess huh. Uh, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but having your office smell like a Hollister store is a capital offense here at Point of Rental. Um, oh. And I guess in the world, in the U.S., I don't know what capital offense actually means. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> That's a, oh uh, you've been sentenced to death. Um, oh. What is your last meal and why? Oh, man. Um, I think uh, the generic, like a really good steak and potato type of thing would be fine. Um, maybe something like, I really like pasta, so maybe chicken Throw in some mac and cheese. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean. It seems like you haven't thought this through. Do you want anything to drink or a dessert or? No. You know, maybe, maybe sparkling water. <laughs> LaCroix. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Maybe I would change, maybe enjoying running. I've always hated running. Maybe I would change that about myself because I do run just for the health aspect, um, but I hate it. I hated it in the Marine Corps. I hate it now. Like, I hate running. What is your spirit spice? Um, spirit spice. Um, I Like a spirit animal, but with but spice? spices. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Have you been in a kitchen before? Yes. Seen a spice rack? Um, okay. Um, I don't know. Cardamom? spice girls. Cardamom? Yeah. Why is that? I don't know what that is. But <laughs> you don't know yourself either. I, so. I, I don't, you know, yeah, it's, it's intriguing because uh, it sounds like, it sounds fancy, but I don't know what it is. That's Colin. <laughs> wow. So I'm fancy. You chose it because it's your spirit spice. That oh, means you feel I this see. connection to it. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, it's bougie, um, but um, unpredictable. Yeah, thank you, Colin, for chatting today.
No response. Okay. Sure, uh, Jules, so- <laughs> anytime. Send Colin some love this week. Send him an email or your favorite whale gif. Um, and just be epic and let him know that you care. And thanks for listening today. We'll keep the porch light burning for you. Oh, was this being recorded too? It was some like mall magazine about like malls. We recorded all of that. But we'll send you a link in case you want to send it to your mom to listen to. Just kidding. I'm not a sociopath. So yeah, stay warm.